In my career, I've spent countless hours deciphering the behaviour of criminals, the most baffling of which the obsessive nature of stalkers. Stalking is unique in the sense that it's among the most personal and invasive crimes committed, and the incentive is rarely monetary. On this episode, psychologist Dr. L.D. Tabori will be taking us inside the mind of these perpetrators, what causes the behaviour and the impact they can have on their victims' lives permanently. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson. My first experience with a stalker actually was when I was working in the jail. The stalker was a female, and she actually was stalking her former therapist. And this was before everything was really out there in public on Google and everything. What she did was she looked in her car, and she had pieces of mail sitting on the car seat next to her, and she saw the return address, and that's how she found out where she was living. So she would go and sit out in front of her house. She would sit down the street and look at her. And then how the therapist found out that she had been doing this was she would kind of mention things in passing. Like, oh yeah, you know, that that pretty pink top that you were wearing the other day. She's like, what? I didn't see you the other day. So she got these little bits and pieces and put the puzzle together. The stalker was basically wanting the victim to know that she was doing it in a very subtle way. I don't know if she was wanting her to know that or if she just wasn't very protective of her criminal behaviors. Right. Okay. I mean, she she wasn't very sophisticated at all. She wasn't stupid, but she wasn't sophisticated. She didn't have a criminal background at all. Um, she was just a depressed, maybe 30-ish and she just started to fantasize about having not a romantic relationship with her therapist, but that she and the therapist were close friends, maybe that she was a maternal figure, something like that. I mean, we hear about Stockholm Syndrome and, you know, turning your attention towards somebody that is helping you or in authority is a, a common trait, right? It's it's really about some sort of perceived relationship or former relationship that exists. You know, obviously we think about romantic partners, but, you know, as somebody who was a mentor, a therapist, a doctor in some sort of sense. What would be a thing that would make someone turn to become that? I think any of us could step over that line in any sort of, of criminal behavior based on what is going on in our life. You know, we all have ups and downs in our life. And when there is you know, a confluence of bad things happening in short succession, we tend to melt down a bit. And with that, then we start grabbing at things that we can have some perceived stability. So in, in this case with this woman, she's depressed, she's anxious, whatever was going on in her life, maybe she had lost her own mother. And from what I, I recall, the therapist was, you know, a middle-aged woman at the time. So maybe around her mother's age. And she had projected all these, these feelings of loss onto this therapist. So this therapist could save her, maybe make the pain of whatever it was go away. 
I was involved in a number of cases in the UK. Obviously, back in those days, it wasn't considered serious until there was a show called Crime Watch during the 80s and 90s, hugely successful show. But the presenter was a very attractive middle-aged woman and she was actually stalked and it was common knowledge in the news. And then one day the guy went to her house, she opened the door, didn't know it was him and he shot her and that was the end of her. And it was a big case in the UK. So again, let's look at the kind of at the stalker and what what would make somebody go from the kind of following the photographing to the actual act because not every stalker is going to go and kill you, going to go and hurt you. You know, there's stalking of different levels. And I actually have a job right now in LA where the stalker has been stalking the victim for 12 years. And in the 12 years wow. time span has gone overseas to live. And she thought it had all gone away and has recently come back and said, not directly to her, but to her circle of, of friends, I'm back to finish the job. And that's basically all he said. Now everyone has taken it that he's he's back to come and harm her. Now he's gone to masses of, of extremes to not be caught. Does she know who he is? Yeah, we know who he is. We don't know where he lives. And now he's stealing other people's identity to be able to stalk her through the internet without her realizing or being able to identify where he is. I mean, very, very smart, very, very sophisticated. And we've had to actually now use one of their friends to infiltrate him. He's having a significant impact on her life, although he's not actually doing anything but kind of an internet stalking campaign. They had a very close friend die in their network and he contacted one of the friends and said, see you at the funeral. Probably not the only one we'll go to. So obviously I now, I had to advise her not to go because we, you know, we're not going to flood it with 50 offices. That's not, it's not possible. But it was heartbreaking because this person was very close to her and it was a safety issue that you don't go because we don't know if he's going to be there. We don't know if he's going to see you get in a car and know your car and follow you home. And we don't know any of that. This guy worked with her and they argued once in the office because he was talking too loud. On the, They're in little cubicles and he was talking too loud. And she said to a manager, he's really annoying me because all he does all day is talk on the phone really loud for personal matters. So the manager spoke to him. He knew it was her bank. That was it. And he's given her 12 years of hell. And what this person is doing, whoever he is, is pretty extreme. But the stalkers, just on a low level, that trolling behavior is stalking. You know, looking at people's Instagram and, you know, their stories and things like that, looking at the little pieces. Like if you, if I'm take a picture of you right now and with this background of this window right here, you know, you, your stalker, you know, I know Nina lives here. So I'm going to start looking at what area, what time of day is it? You can see the sun coming through. And I see that on so many levels. A lot of it is when relationships end. You know, I had somebody get a message from a former partner through a video gaming system because they had been blocked on social media. They'd been blocked on the phone and email and all those things. It's an obsession. That's what it is for whatever reason. But they do go to extremes like that, for example. 
And I, I think a lot of it, generally, it's more like it's filling a void. You do have those extremes, um, you know, like with your person, your stalker, and the one story that you just shared. And it reminded me of the whole Rebecca Schaefer story. And I, I was just watching a documentary a few weeks ago, and all these stalkers had this thing in common where they were all reading J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. So not that that makes a stalker, but you know that novel, that type of book speaks to a certain, not just one generation, but an age that comes generationally. And it's filling this void of something that isn't there. If a stalker comes and has therapy, I mean, do people acknowledge that they're doing it? You know, what, what's your experience sitting face-to-face? Because my only experience sitting face-to-face is when I've locked them up. A couple things that I, I, I have noticed. Um, uh, depression and anxiety, very, very prevalent. Um, usually there is a loss of something that has gone on in their life, a loss of of what you had mentioned before of an important person, either a parent, a mentor. Some of it has been abuse, what we would call ACE or adverse childhood experiences, you know, some sort of abuse, some sort of something that they don't recognize as abuse until somebody says, hey, that was abusive. If somebody's getting whacked in the head every single day and then they go to school and they, well, I guess kids get whacked in the head until somebody else says, no, no, kids don't get whacked in the head all the time. But one of the things that I I did pick up on, and I'm not saying that this was with everybody, but the ones that it wasn't extreme cases, but they didn't realize that what they were doing was wrong. And a lot of it was, well, I just want to get this person to talk to me. Yeah. So then we start talking like, well, what do you think they're going to say? Do you think they're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was wrong. You're the best thing that's ever happened in my life. Let's be friends. Let's get back together. Let's continue this relationship, whatever form it was in. And I think nowadays with, you know, the dating world, you know, you get the text message. And then at what point does it switch into becoming not okay behavior? So it's gone from, you know, oh, I don't want to talk to you anymore. It's just not worked. But then the text messages continue and continue. And, you know, it switches into this is this is more than just somebody's pissed off because you stopped talking to them on a dating app or whatever it might be. What I think happens is, and I, I, I don't mean to victim blame in any sort of sense here. So I don't want that to come off as this. But what happens, you know, let's say you start engaging with this person and then they start, they say something and you haven't met this person yet. Maybe you've had a phone call. You should have a phone call before you go and bother to meet them. But something is exchanged in a message and it kind of puts you off and, you know, the, the red flags are raised. A lot of times people will continue by ignoring these red flags, but let's just say you don't and you continue to engage. And then the person gets more aggressive. And the one of the things that is the best thing to do is just not engage at all, period. That's ultimately what somebody wants is attention. And when they're not getting it, they become more aggressive. But when they do get it, they, they're getting what they set out to get. So they're having some kind of reaction. And I, I mean, I always advise clients of that, but I also advise, you know, everyone's like, just block them, just block them. I always advise don't block, just keep anything that comes through because evidentially if something happens down the track and this person does know where you live and it does continue in a different way, 
you have now got some evidence, some hard evidence that, you know, this was kind of the behavior. Nobody wants to be rejected. It always, always, always feels icky because we're human. Would you say is that a common denominator with these types of people and their behavior? In some way, they feel there's a rejection. I, I think rejection to the extreme because we get rejected all the time you know, uh, in, in little ways that sometimes we don't even pay attention to. Somebody driving down the street and you want to get into their lane and they're, they speed up and they don't let you. That's a rejection. Yeah, it's irritating. But, you know, it's like, oh, well, whatever. Go be an idiot down the road and I'm not going to crash, right? But somebody like that would, like, follow them down the street. And I had that happen to me years and years ago. I think I was in my mid-20s. And, you know, I— accidentally cut somebody off. And admittedly, I am a bad driver, but I accidentally cut somebody off and they followed me like another two miles down the road. And I was picking up dry cleaning. I remember this. And I'm getting out of my car and going in, pick up my dry cleaning. I come back out and they had been sitting in the parking lot blocking my car. After that, I'm like, you need to let me out. He screamed at me, backed up, then let me out. And I saw him following me. And I had learned when I was younger to, you know, well, go to a police station, drive to a police station, don't go home. And which is what exactly what I did in a minute, you know, I pulled in front of a yeah. police station, the guy was gone. Sometimes it, it's not a long period of time too, right? You know, and it can happen so quickly. I mean, we would advise people about how they leave their house, whether they can change their routine, because a stalker picks up on a routine. So they know that you're leaving home at 8.30 in the morning. So if they have the desire to see you or follow you, because they may only know where you live and now they want to know where you work. People have routines. They go to work and they come home yeah. and they go to the gym and they walk the dog. And, and that for a stalker is perfect. And I mean, I'm being ultra extreme now because of my background, but, you know, taking different routes home. If you think that somebody may be following you, be conscious of who is behind you. And again, it's a, it's a balance of not affecting your life, but it's about protecting yourself and still having your life. Because the minute that you stop having your life, your stalker has achieved what they want. They've affected you in whatever way it may be. And so it's all about, for me, it's having that balance, but being safe and cautious. And if things do escalate, then making sure that you go and speak to the right person. Because if they're stalking you, it may not just be you. It yeah. may be friends and associates. It can happen quickly and it can go from zero to a hundred real quick. And that's, that's the problem. Or it can be dragged out for 12 years like my client. And now 12 years later. Wow. Let's talk a, a little bit about the victims that you have dealt with. What's the impact on people's lives from this kind of behavior? I mean, this intense fear that something bad is going to happen, this constant paranoia. I mean, think about it. If you have somebody who's come after you, every time you walk out of your house, you're looking around, you know, you start being reclusive. You start, you know, staying in, not going out because you don't want to deal with the outside world. It really impacts your ability to do um, your activities of daily living, like, you know, going to the grocery store, going to the gym, you know, walking your dog around the block. And then a lot of times, as we experience on multiple levels with law enforcement, not listening to somebody 
somebody sitting down the street. Well, it's a public street. Are they doing anything to you? No. Are they threatening you in any way? No, but it's really uncomfortable. And I feel like I can't step out of my house. Well, we can't do anything if they're sitting down the street. And then it's this fear, this gaslighting effect. And what happens with gaslighting is we start to question our own sanity. Well, is this really happening? Am I I making this up? Did that person actually sit at the end of my street every day this week? And we question our own sense of reality. And then you, you become the victim as in it's my fault. Right. What did I do to cause this person to behave so badly? And that's a big societal question that, you know, especially women get held responsible for men behaving badly. Is there anything that people can look for? Are there any red flags? Are there anything that before it even gets to that point, you should be thinking, "Mm, this isn't right? First piece of advice, listen to your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it's not right. Even if you think it's like, completely crazy and out of whack, if it doesn't feel right, get yourself out of that situation. Make as much noise as possible. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that not just literally, but figuratively. You know, make somebody listen to you. And then, you know, it, it, watch out for those red flags. You know, again, a lot of times we ignore them. Oh, yeah, they're just having a bad day. Yeah, but when I have a bad day, I don't go stalking people. You know, when I have a bad day, I'm going to call my friends and cry in my gym. Trust yourself. If you see somebody at the end of the street and that person's been there two days in a row, there's something wrong. Make the noise. And the second thing is don't engage. You know, if somebody you're meeting on a dating app and they say something, get yourself out of it. My, my introduction to stalking way back when, when I was in training, I was sitting in a lecture um, in the jail and the psychiatrist was talking about, um, and again, this was a long time ago, what increases that stalking behavior, and that is the engagement. And he was sharing a story about somebody who was being stalked, and letters were being sent to this person's home, and they started to write return to sender, and it made the stalker feel, oh, well, at least they're engaging. There's some sort of message. You see, if that got sent to the stalker that I had, I think that would have just made him think she's rejecting me because they're coming back. They're not read. And and when he wrote my letters, he definitely wanted me to read them. And of course, I'm a detective. I read them. Um, (laughs) Again, probably not the best thing to do, but I think had they been sent back to him, that could have triggered him to be, I have a rejection from her and that's not he was seeking. He needed some acknowledgement that I knew who he was. It's such a delicate situation because you don't know what's going to trigger people. And my case right now, I, I can't say to her, oh, he hasn't actually physically done anything to you for 12 years. I can't say that tomorrow might not be the day that he decides he's going to because he's not getting a response or because something in his life triggers him right. that is like, okay, well, she's going to get it. I dealt with another case actually in Beverly Hills and it was a family, a celebrity family. And again, they felt there was no one else helping them. And there were three siblings and the stalker hated two of them 
but he loved one of them. And that was a very interesting case because the husband of the one that he was in love with, inverted commas, was also a celebrity on TV every single day. And so he wanted to take the one he loved away from the rest of the family. So we believe that he was actually going to go and grab her because in his mind, she was in a a family that was terrible, that was abusive. It was all in his mind. Right. Now we're dealing with a celebrity. And I don't know, sometimes it's easier to get celebrities' details than it is somebody else's. But he had every single phone number. He had their private phone numbers. He had every single piece of social media that they were on, and he would place things on there. Eventually, the police did step in because of who the family were which is kind of sad, but um, they did do their job. But again, you're up against a, a timer with these kind of cases. Yeah, yeah, because it is it is really scary. I, I, I evaluated a guy once who was stalking a celebrity, not because there was this desire of a relationship with this celebrity, but he got it into his head that this celebrity um, had stolen his girlfriend. And the girlfriend was never a girlfriend of his. It was just somebody he had been in a church group with, and they never had any individual activities when, like, they would go out to pizza or whatever, and it was always, always, always in a group. But he felt that this one celebrity had stolen her, and so he ended up stalking. And he went to prison, and he was um, clearly—I mean, there, there was a lot of mental health issues with this guy. But again, there is a difference between how we handle things. You know, if we handle things like, oh, I'm having a bad day, I'm going to cry versus I'm having a bad day and now I'm going to point the finger at that person and that person is now causing everything that's ever happened bad to me in my life and I'm going to make their life hell. Are they mean, evil people? I mean, they're doing mean, evil things um, without an awareness of consequences. You can't say that everybody is mean and evil, but irresponsible, yes. He was released from prison. That same day, goes to the celebrity's home and starts, you know, buzzing the gate. Now, the law enforcement in that area, this was in Malibu, in that area, knew about this and knew the stalker. And so he was arrested immediately. But the perceived relationship in this sort of case, which is not the norm, but not completely uncommon, it's a pattern of behavior too that you see. I mean, it's rarely a a one and done, right? I'm going to stalk Nina. Now, Nina's not dealing with me. I'm going to go stalk Susan. And then I'm going to go stalk Patricia, right? It is a pattern of behavior. And sometimes there are no consequences to that pattern. Yeah. You know, if Nina doesn't do something and Patricia doesn't do something and Susan doesn't do something, then I'm going to continue this behavior because since there are no consequences to it, it's not wrong. In the world we now live, there's no way of fully preventing this type of obsessive attention. But it's important that we take the proper precautions once we see the warning signs. Many situations escalate because we ignore the red flags and second-guess our own intuition. Never hesitate to alert the authorities when faced with this type of behaviour and always keep any evidence. These people play on our fear and use intimidation and there's no limit to the amount of damage that they can do to their victims physically and emotionally. 
Join me next week and I'll share my own story of what it was like being the focus of this type of obsessive behaviour myself. We'll also take you inside the 12-year-long stalking case with two of the operatives on the ground, my daughter Amy and son Harrison. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson and this has been Codename Siren. Siren.